Well, I just want to say, like, I haven't had a TV since high school. I, I read a paper book every two days. You know, I, I walk my dog in the park without a phone. Like, I've, I've been so thoughtful about this for so long, and yet I am strapped to the Internet for hours and hours a day, 75% out of requirement, 25% out of fun. Or maybe it's the other way around. This is How To. I'm Charles Duhigg, and I have a confession to make. I look at my phone way too much. Just this week, in fact, these are all the times that I've looked at my phone when I should not have done it. Um, There was a time that I was conducting an interview, and I got momentarily bored, and I glanced down at my phone. Um, And then I came home that night, and my wife was telling me about her day, and I was in the other room, and I was checking my email on my phone instead of paying attention to her. And then the next day, I had dinner with my kids, but they were fighting with each other, and I was just, like, done with it. And so instead of redirecting the conversation back to something pleasant, I glanced at my phone under the table. I didn't even have any email. I think I looked at Instagram. I am not proud of these moments at all. And, And I bet a lot of you feel the same way. And so this week, we've got two experts to help us solve what is a relatively recent problem in the annals of human problems, how to put down your phone. First up is one of the sharpest writers about the internet and our digital lives. Uh, My name is Gia Tolentino. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of the essay collection Trick Mirror, which just came out a couple months ago. How um, How much screen time did you have last week? I have, let's see... So I, I, have, I have a daily average of two hours, 42 minutes. Mm-hmm. What have you got? Five hours a day. Five hours a day. So, yeah, I wish I looked at my phone less, but I have to write about the internet. Right. It's, <laughs> for better or worse, that's my beat. And do you feel like, when you say you wish you looked at your phone less, why? Because I think that generally I'm having a better time when I'm not looking at my phone. Your brain feels better. When you find yourself picking up your phone and you don't intend to. Yeah. Like, what, what, is that, what are you feeling right before you do? I think it's a conditioned reflex and the fulfillment of that conditioned reflex. That's it. Like, the mark of, like, a really good night out is, like, no one took any pictures. And, like, you, you forget. You don't your even phone think about and, it. And you miss, like, the email that you, like, should have answered, but you don't. I totally get where Gia's coming from, because I wish I had more dinners where I never thought about pulling out my phone. And after this quick break, Gia and Cal Newport, this guy who's known for thinking about deep work and how we can be focused on what really matters, will talk about some of the ways to control our phones rather than our phones controlling us. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Um, no, it's fine. Let's just do it. Uh, in fact, I got to send... Um, hold on just... Okay. Taming. Okay. We're back. 
Okay, let's... <laughs> Is that my phone? That was my phone. Okay, I'm turning it off now. I thought I was hoping it was your phone. Okay, we're back. So in addition to Gia Tolentino, we also reached out to Cal Newport, who's a computer science professor at Georgetown University. My most recent book is titled Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Cal's written a lot about how to concentrate when we're surrounded by technology. But even he finds himself often distracted by his phone. And so he decided to look into why. The biggest issue people seem to have was this this notion of lost autonomy, that they, they knew they did not want to be looking at the screen as much as they were looking at it and in the situations they were looking at it. That um, I'm here with my kid or I'm sitting across from a good friend at dinner or I'm watching a movie that I've been excited to watch and yet I can't help but look down at the screen. That really distresses people. That almost helpless sense of, I didn't sign up to look at this thing all the time and now I can't stop myself from doing it. It's hard to remember, but there was actually a time before we were all constantly glued to our phones. The iPhone only came out in 2007. Before that, everyone had those flip phones or Blackberries. And you could text someone or you could email, but it didn't feel as addictive as phones today. And there weren't all these apps designed to give you this dopamine rush with every new like and the, the infinite scroll. Of course, making the internet more accessible, that also has a lot of upsides. I owe my career to the Internet's sort of democratizing force. I wouldn't have been able to get a job in media if not for the Internet. Like, I like I literally never knew anyone that worked in media or lived in New York or was a journalist. I graduated into the recession. I'm from a quote-unquote non-traditional background. And I was in grad school for fiction writing, actually. And I got on Twitter. And I was able to get hired out of nowhere, cold hired out of nowhere to run this website because I seemed funny online. And yeah, and that was basically it. After a few years working at online magazines, she said she had to sort of train herself to be more mindful of her screen time. My main concern was the feeling of just mental degradation <laughs> that comes with the internet, like that comes with like strapping yourself to so like to this like barrage of information that you can't calibrate correctly. I don't mind picking up my phone and reading stuff, you know, when I'm like there's a really long line at the bodega. I mean, I think with the internet it's like I've always just wanted to ask myself what it's taking from me and what it's giving me. It's interesting cuz I I think the way I experience this is I have grown out of practice with boredom and stillness. Yeah. And so, like, when I'm in line for the bodega, I'm the same way, right? Like, it's definitely way more fun to, like, look at Twitter or to, like, see, like, what's happened lately or look at the email that I got. And there is that kind of, like, yeah. positive reaction I have. It's just novel and it's new and it might yeah. be interesting. But as a result, like, I used to spend that time standing in line at the bodega, like, thinking about the story I'm working on. And, like, that I actually feel like is the thing I've lost. Yeah. And the thing about about our phones is that, it's not a choice usually to pick them up and look at them. It feels much more like an, an, a nearly automatic reaction. A reflex, yeah. Yeah, a reflex. And so as a result, I don't even notice so much what I'm missing in the moment. Yeah. But in the aggregate, I look back and I think to myself, two hours and 54 minutes a day that I'm spending on this. Yeah. That maybe is like at least like maybe 30 minutes of that is time that I could have just been like daydreaming and had some idea about how to work on this next chapter. Or this yeah, next totally, story. totally. That's what I feel like I want more control over. Yeah. 
Well, this is this was the question I wanted to answer. Okay, why are people uneasy? And what seemed to be clear is that it wasn't so much what people were doing when they were on their phones, right? It wasn't that, hey, when I'm looking at my phone, the thing I'm doing on my phone is worthless or is making my life worse. They were looking at the phone beyond when was productive. They were looking at the phone to the exclusion of things that they knew were more important. The proverbial, I'm giving a bath to my kid, and yet I can't help but look at the phone. So so explain to me your idea of the 30-day kind of cleanse? What do you call it? The terminology is actually kind of important. Yeah, I call it the the clutter, uh, which I, I should also say another way of saying that is it's not a detox, which comes out of the substance abuse community, where a detox is really about the first step towards a permanent change of your relationship with something just damaging. And so I, I, I don't quite like the appropriation of that term to talk about just taking breaks from technology. I think taking breaks is, is overrated. You need to fix the underlying problem. And so I pitched this idea of the the clutter, that the core notion is basically you do what, let's say, Mary Kondo says you should do for your closet if it's overcrowded. You don't just take a couple things out, then hope that over time your closet gets better. She said, you know, empty the whole thing out and then just put back in what you really want. Like, just tell me, like, how do I do that? Like, if, if I pull out my phone, how do I how do I declutter to start the the 30-day declutterization? So the the basic idea is you you start by taking out all of what we call the sort of optional technologies in your personal life. So for most people, this is social media, streaming video. And so you start by stepping away from all of those optional technologies in your personal life. And then you take 30 days. And the whole idea of the 30 days is that for most people, you actually need a little bit of time and a little bit of space to get back in touch with this idea of what do I actually want to do or what's really important. And then when you're done with the 30 days, you say, okay, now what do I want to add back? And hopefully now you're doing it from a, from a place that's a little bit more informed than when you started. So this is the first rule for how to put down your phone. Remove all the games and optional apps and, and anything else you don't absolutely need. And then go without them for 30 days. And then afterwards, ask yourself what you really missed. And more importantly, what you didn't miss during the last month. It's kind of like having a hard reboot of your digital life. And at the end, the goal is to have a better sense of what's truly essential and what's just a big time suck that, that doesn't make you happy at all. Gia tried Cal's 30-day digital declutter, and she wrote about it in The New Yorker. Yeah, I tried it, and it was it was wild. It was wild to me. Like, that's, I think, when I realized how fully and permanently I am still tied to the internet and social media for work. I couldn't completely, I think I gave myself an hour a day where I could try to cram in all of the research for this couple of pieces I was working on. But I did it, and I went from, let's say, like four hours, four and a half, five hours a day on my phone to very, very little. And yeah, I mean, what that does, it just makes you bare to the fact of being alive and the sort of existential dread and wonder of it. And it was a doozy. So did you like it? Did you feel like this was like a, the Cal's suggestion on how to do this is the right suggestion? Yeah, I mean, I... So the one thing that I didn't do, because I remember in the book, there's there's this idea that we should try to replace phone time with enriching real life activities, which I did not do because I didn't want to do that. 
because I didn't want to give up my phone in the interest of being sort of more productive, you know, like more holistically, whatever. I wanted that dread and I wanted that wonder and I wanted to feel bored and, you know, I wanted to feel unstimulated and see what my mind did in its absence. I wanted to just lay on my couch and stare at the wall for 30 minutes and not not fill my brain with a continual stream of new information. And that's the thing that really broke me. I heard a lot of similar stories, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's incredibly uncomfortable to feel bored. And so one of the theories behind boredom is that this is what drives us to get over our our basic instinct to conserve energy, which all animals have. You want to conserve energy because if you run out, you die or the predator gets you. And so I've been interested in this notion that boredom is really important. But if you subvert the boredom drive by having this glowing rectangle that can immediately get rid of the boredom in the moment, just like when you subvert the hunger drive by going towards the most palatable junk food, it it causes these sort of maladapted type issues. And so this is one of the things I like about this declutter period is that it forces you to get back in touch with boredom. And where does it drive you? When you no longer have the option of, of vanquishing the boredom with a quick tap on a screen and you have to get up and do something, what seems to satisfy it? I think what I was trying to do with this 30 days for me, which was the thing that I needed to do, it was to no longer think of my phone as something that would supply me with on-demand anything. I used to feel when I worked as an editor, I'd be looking at Twitter all day for stories to assign. And at the end of the day, I would have to like go and read poetry in a corner by myself to focus my attention again. Like My attention span would be just totally ruined. But... I think the thing that the 30-day thing really did for me was just it, it was that it was just the logic of productivity thing. What do you mean? That's what it it illuminated how how much I had been formed by it, how much I had absorbed it into my bones that I needed to be producing and doing something productive every minute of the day. Um the idea that like I should always be I should always be sucking up information with the idea that maybe it could be useful later on. Um, and again, it's it's not so far off from the way that I want to live, but there was something about feeling my selfhood be out of reach of monetization, more out of reach of monetization by corporations than it normally is. Yeah, that's the thing that the 30 days really made me aware of. Gia is pointing towards something bigger than just the compulsion to pick up our phones. And when we come back, we'll explore how to survive and, and hopefully thrive in the attention economy. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. 
The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. We're back. And, and here's the big question. If all of us want to use our phones less, why is it so hard? What makes us so susceptible to these like little glowing screens? Why are our brains conspiring against us? If your mind gets used to this notion that there's this constant stimuli, that you're constantly changing over to new sources of information, uh, you will over time find that it's difficult to sustain focus on one thing because your mind, like a Pavlovian reaction, has been trained. Boredom means stimuli, and focusing on one thing is boring. But I think the deeper issue is that the human brain actually needs time alone with its own thoughts and observing the world around it. Right. So we call this solitude. And so this is, I think, an unintentional consequence of having ubiquitous access to this information, good or bad information, is that it gives you the ability to completely avoid that solitude state, that your brain is just constantly put into a situation where it has to be in this all hands on deck. We're processing input from another mind, which is something that as an incredibly social species, we take very seriously, and it uses a lot of resources. And if that's what you do all the time, it, it leads to long, long-term long issues. It seems to make people, for example, anxious and jumpy because the brain is essentially saying uncle. But if we're trying to train ourselves to have that solitude, right, whether it's because we sort of see some benefit to ourselves in it or whether because we just crave it or we think it's a human condition that we should experience, what do we know about enhancing that tolerance? Like how how do Gia and I enhance our tolerance for this kind of time that has no usefulness associated with it. So the hack, which I actually think is quite effective, is you just get in the habit of doing one or two things every day without your phone. And it doesn't even have to be that long. I mean, it's you're, you're going to walk down to the Walgreens because you need to pick something up and come back, or you're, you drive to a store and you leave the phone in the glove compartment to go do your shopping. That's the short-term hack. 
But what it gives you in your life is at least 10 to 20 minutes of time alone with your own thoughts and your environment on a regular basis, which even that small change, at least readers report back to me, can have a a significant improvement to this background hum of anxiety. This is the second rule. If that first rule, the the 30-day declutter, if it seems too radical, then just try it for short periods of each day. Retrain yourself how to experience solitude through these quick daily exercises, which when you think about it, isn't really that hard, right? That's what life was like before the iPhone. The real goal here is to figure out, what do you want out of your tech? What seems to work is this notion of, of working backwards from what's important, choosing your tech to support those things. And then, and this is sort of the key twist, is putting in place those rules around the tech use to get the benefits while sidestepping the cost. But the key notion is that the tech you're using, if it's intentional and there's rules around it, uh, that tends to give people the sense of autonomy back. And that seems to cure a lot of the unease. A few years ago, Gia came up with her own hacks to help regulate her phone time. In addition to removing nearly all of her social media from her phone, she installed a couple of apps that block her from certain sites during certain hours of the day. One of them is called Freedom. So I have Freedom on right now. I can't look at I can't look at social media from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Okay. So it keeps me from looking at it before I go to sleep and right when I wake up. And that's when I try to read books the most. And I've stopped really wanting to look at social media then. I feel a little irritated, but then mostly good. The parts of me that still feel under sway to these mechanisms... I've gotten it as good as I can get it, and it's going to be like this until we (laughs) somehow find some way to dismantle the fundamental profit model of the internet. Part of the problem is that our jobs increasingly require us to be on our phones. I am strapped to the internet for hours and hours a day, 75% out of requirement, 25% out of fun, you know? Or maybe it's the other way around. Like, I think the real problem is the like lack of regulation on Silicon Valley itself. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like the real problem is that like American leisure time is spread out into micro installments, you know, like the real problem is what's happening in labor. Like, you know, I I think decluttering works, but you know, it's, it's a solution to a problem that shouldn't exist. And like the fact that the problem shouldn't exist is the thing. So so Cal, what do you think of that? I tend to be, much more optimistic. So this moment, by moment, I mean about 30-year period of a drive towards more uh, faster communication, more ubiquitous, pervasive communication, especially in the knowledge work sphere, uh, is more emergent and arbitrary than we give credit to. It it represents a a sort of inefficient deployment of cognitive resources. And even market forces themselves are probably going to push us as as this economy sector grows towards a place in which we actually spend much less time communicating. So I actually think we're reaching sort of peak frenetic communication in the workplace and that this is going to get better. If 20 years from now, we're sending Slack messages every five seconds, I'll be surprised. And, uh, you know, this is good news for everyone, but Gia, (laughs) her job is really is going to make it almost impossible to squash that other 25%. But for a lot of other people, you can go much farther. I mean, I wonder, I guess I mean, I wonder... I would love it if in 20 years that generation is not my age and sending messages on their phone for work every five seconds. But for me, having grown up in the time of like just having seen how the Internet changed in my coming of age, it's it's hard for me to imagine. But I love the idea that it could be like that. And I I 
take that optimism to heart, maybe. So maybe it'll sink in. You wrote in the piece that you wrote about about reading Cal's book that after the decluttering, that you found yourself feeling more grateful for your phone than ever. Yeah, I mean, I'm still really glad that I can look up facts on Wikipedia when I'm stoned whenever I want, you know? That I, like, can't remember what constellations look like, but I can look at an app that'll tell me, you know? Like, this was a this was a part of, of Cal, your book, where you talk about people wanting to cut down just being constantly available by text, right? And that's something, actually, that I realized. I mean, I text for so much every day. And I realized, actually, I love that. <laughs> I love talking to people all day. Like, one of the reasons that I'm on my phone a lot is because I try to avoid my computer screen to the extent that I can. Like, I write on paper when I can. And, it, you know, if you're home alone all day and you're social. It's lonely. Yeah, and one way for it not to be lonely is it's to... texting. It's a text. No, it's like a little, like, like every single time one of my friends sends me, like, some dumb comment and I'm sitting at my desk, it's like they sent me a little gift. Yeah, it's great. I love yeah. texting. <laughs> and this is the final rule. To remember that one of the reasons we use our phones and all the technology in our lives is because they do these wonderful things, right? I, I can leave my office and go play with my kids and then pull out my phone and get some work done while they're resting. Or, or if I'm driving and the emergency fuel light comes on, I can within seconds find the closest gas station. Our phones make our lives better, as long as we are deliberate and thoughtful about how we use them, as long as they're a choice rather than a reflex. We, uh, we have a lot more control over that than we think, but it's hard to figure out the right way to exercise that control. The vast majority of people, the vast majority of what they're doing on their phone in those moments is often deferable or dispensable. And people are often surprised by once they spend, let's say, a month doing a transformation, they're surprised by, oh, I, I can significantly reduce these things in my personal time with without much negative ramification. There's a lot more autonomy there to be gained uh, if you have some good strategies for going after it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I've learned a lot from hearing you talk to you, Cal, about this. That hopefully will pay off in what I do with my phone when I'm next hanging out with my kids. Well, I hope you don't tweet about this soon because the ironies would be... It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Overwhelming, yeah. Thank you so much to Cal Newport and Gia Tolentino. Make sure to look for Cal's latest book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And Gia's great new book of essays, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. Do you have a problem that needs solving? Send us a note at howtoitslate.com and we might be able to help. And we do not mind if you use your phone to do it. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Special thanks to Asha Saluja. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for listening. <laughs>